I know. I, I, I had never heard it until a couple of weeks ago. It's easy to sing. It sings, it almost sings itself. Here we go.
All I did was plug it into the laptop. That's about how technical I am. What's a laptop? There we go. What's the internet? Well, welcome this morning. It's uh, so great to see all of you. Uh, on the heels of the resurrection, I want to talk about our priestly inheritance this morning. So I, I want to ask you if you would kindly all stand for the public reading of the word and, and turn, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, I want us to look at four verses that are very significant. It's the first words that God spoke to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. Okay, Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the sons and children of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your eternal word. It's as real and as alive today when you, as it was when you first spoke these words to Moses on the holy mount, Mount Sinai. Lord, we pray that we'd have ears to hear what is in the heart of our Father this morning. Lord, it has been such a deep longing in your heart to have a priestly, royal, holy nation that is your prized, treasured possession. And we're just so thankful that we live this side of the cross. Thank you that because of the shed blood of Jesus, we can enter into this royal priesthood of the Most High. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear as I sound the shofar again. Lord, I pray that our spiritual hearing would be tuned into heaven's frequency this morning. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Thank you that you do speak to us in these days. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We see, her, see here in this, in this text that God's heart and intention is expressed to Moses on Mount Sinai in a very special way. And a common theme woven throughout the Bible is that God is forming for himself a holy kingdom of priests. From Melchizedek in Genesis 
all the way through Revelation, we see this deep longing in God's heart to have a kingdom of priests. And even the Apostle Peter's first letter, if you could turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And I would ask if Bill could read that for us. Here, Peter had this revelation of priesthood, especially of those of us that believe in Christ. So, Bill, if you could read that. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Beautiful. Now let's go to Revelation 1, verse 6, and we've got the scripture that let's all read it together. It's up on the screen. Okay? And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests unto his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Now let's all read the next displayed text of Revelation 5. Same book of Revelation. John wants to establish this fact in the very first chapter of this revelation that he gets. Kingdom of priests. Now let's read together verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 5. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Wow. Friends, I tell you and remind you this morning, our calling and destiny is to worship before God's throne as his royal priestly people. A little testimony. I, I grew up Roman Catholic up in Chicago. So I heard the term priest. I had uh, Catholic education all throughout grammar school, uh, high school, even university. Uh, so hearing the term priest all throughout my early years was very common. And in fact, there was a point in my life that I seriously considered becoming a Catholic priest. And then I weighed the possibility. I said, well, I kind of like girls. So yeah. Anyway, the Lord said, no, not that type of a priest. But, you know, it was, it was then that I, I came to an awareness when the Lord opened my eyes concerning the royal priesthood that God has called each of us to in the person of Christ Jesus. So what I want to do today is to help us all see the treasure that we as the new covenant people of God, what we have inherited concerning our priesthood by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. But I want to start with the significance of the temple. The temple is where the priests served. So let's go back to Herod's temple or the second temple. In the time it, of Jesus, it looked a little bit like this. This is kind of a basic, uh, just squared out aspect of it that I put together. But there were basically four distinct parts. Now, I'm going to 
go from the least, uh, from the greatest to the least. So the greatest place within the temple was the most holy place, also called the Holy of Holies. Then there was the inner court or the, <coughs> excuse me, or the holy place. Then there was the outer court, or it's also called the great court. And then there was the court of the Gentiles. And I'll explain all four of these a little bit later. But you need to become aware of the privilege that it was to be the Lord's priest. What a holy privilege. But with that also came an awesome responsibility. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to a really key text this morning of, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. And I want us to look at three significant verses. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 21. Now, I specifically chose the New American Standard, the Bible, for this translation. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. I want to focus this morning on this phrase in verse 19. We have boldness to enter the holy place. Now the Greek word that is used here to describe holy place is actually only one word. And it's the word hagion. Hagion. And it's also... Translated as hagios, that word is also used, and it simply means holy place or sanctuary. Now, I, I'm aware that some English translations have put, instead of holy place, they put holiest or most holy. There's even some translations that say holy of holies. And that's all for how they translated the word hagion. But let me ask you this question. How many veils were there in the temple? One. That's a good guess. Any other guesses? Ten. That's a good guess. Do I hear twelve? Twelve. Do I hear 144,000? No. Well, let's look to the answer. The answer is in the previous chapter. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3, tells us how many veils there were in the temple. Okay? Someone read the verse. Bill, do you have that? Yes. Go ahead. The tabernacle was set up in the first room with the lampstand and the table that was furnished with the bread. This is called the holy place. All right, two veils. Behind the veil in the second place, or the most holy, or the holy of holies, was a veil. So here's a description of the holy of holies, the most holy place of where the second veil was. Now, in the Greek, when it translated that holy of holies, it used the Greek word hagion or hagios twice. It just didn't say hagion and then moved on. It's Hagios, Hagios, holy, 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 which signifies the most holy place when the word Hagion or Hagios is used twice. 
doubled for the Holy of Holies. It's not in the single term. Now, to give you a little understanding about the book of Hebrews, the New King James Version, in its introduction to the book of Hebrews, writes this. The content of the book of Hebrews indicates that it was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So in other words, the writer to the Hebrews is sharing what would have been common knowledge to the Jews of that time concerning the courts in the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. So back to our Hebrews 10, 19 verse. Okay? Hebrews 10, 19 only has the word hagion used once. So it's not holy of holies. It's not most holy place. It's the holy place. Holy place. That's how it should have been translated. Okay, are you with me? Yeah, that was pretty weak. I know there's a lot of material to cover this morning. Can I beg you, do not get distracted this morning. Let's stay focused. I know it's easy to wonder, what am I going to have for lunch today? Let me see. Who should I go out with for lunch? I, I, there are endless distractions that come to us. Amen? Amen? Let's stay focused this morning because there's, some, there's a treasure here. There's a real treasure. So the question we should ask is, what then, then did the holy place mean to the Hebrews in the time when this was written? What did it mean to the Jews of that day before the destruction of the temple? What did the word holy place mean to them? And where was it? The Bible tells us a good deal about the tabernacle of Moses. It also describes well the temple of Solomon. However, the scriptures give us very little historical detail concerning Herod's temple or the second temple. So we need some other historical sources to find out about that temple. It was 1987. I'd been living in Jerusalem six years, and the Lord really arrested my heart. I had been discipling two fellows that actually were older than I, wonderful believers of Jesus, real pioneers to the Messianic movement in Israel. And both of them were Cohens. They were priests in their Jewish tradition, and only got saved when they were about uh, 10 or 15. And here I was, and, and they were both in their 40s. And I had the wonderful uh, honor to be able to uh, pour into the lives of these two. But because they were of priestly descent, that stirred up within me, and some of the things that they shared about some of the tradition and customs that they had in growing up was a real honor. They were the ones that were honored to open up the ark in synagogues, to be able to read from the scroll, to be able to carry the scroll around the synagogue. It was the priests that had that honor. So I looked and studied all kinds of writings that I could get. And fortunately, living in Jerusalem, you get a lot of perks. One of them was Hebrew University. I went up to the university, and they have, they have huge rooms of books and volumes of uh, Hebrew antiquities, and, and, uh, but I found some real treasure in the writings of Josephus and in Hebrew antiquities, which is a whole wall of different things. And I just, fortunately, I had someone to help me 
because I wanted to study the temple. And all that historical information, it really gave me greater insight and a deeper appreciation for our priestly inheritance. Now, when Jesus died, it is recorded that a veil was torn in the temple. You see the references there? Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that. But I want us to take another look at Herod's temple again. This uh, image is going to come up a number of times this morning. <coughs> Why? Because the temple is key. Because we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. So first comes the natural, then comes the spiritual, is what Paul says. So for us to look at the natural temple, we can see what some of his plan is for the spiritual temper, temple, which is what we are. Again, four main areas. And the temple really spiritually signified God's presence. So now I want to just describe how the God's presence is and defined in regards to the temple. And I'm going to go from the least to the most significant. So first you have the court of the Gentiles, which is women, children, boys under 13, and even Gentiles were allowed in the temple. Maybe you can recall that situation where some of the religious Jews saw Paul and they assumed that he was with the Gentile. You remember that passage? I don't see any hands. Hallelujah. Well, yeah, it was Trophius, and it's in Acts 21. Uh, verse 29, they were ready to grab Paul and stone him because they thought he brought Trophius from the court of the Gentiles into the great court. But he didn't do that. So the court of the Gentiles represents the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. He's everywhere. He's not limited. Then we move to the outer court of the great court. Now we start moving into exclusivity. Men only. They and all the other priests that were not in temple ministry were in the outer court and all Jewish men above 13 years old. They could not go into the outer court or the great court until they had been bar mitzvahed at 13. And this signifies the recognized presence of God. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you have really sensed the presence of God? I should see every hand. There is a recognized sense. Wow, what a message. Wow, what a song. Wow, what an encounter that we had and sensed the presence of the Lord. That's the recognized presence of God. It's special. It's precious. But then we move to the holy place or the inner court. Also very exclusive. Men only, priests only. Priests that were 30 years old and upward. If you were born of a priestly lineage, lineage you had to wait till you were 30 years old as a man before you could have an access to the inner court. And this represents the glorious presence of God. 
the glorious presence of God, the word kavod in Hebrew means wait. When his glory comes, no one can stand. It says when the cloud filled the temple, the priests couldn't minister. They couldn't do the different functioning. They couldn't offer sacrifice. They couldn't even pray. They were leveled. There is a holy weight that comes when his glory comes. Now, few people have really experienced that. But I tell you, the best is yet to come. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's going to be a revelation globally of God's glory. And I believe it's coming to the end time church. The saints of the Most High that are walking in priestly ministry to God in an upright way that his glory will be seen. There will be a manifestation. And then, the most holy place, the holy of holies. Only one man. You talk about exclusive. Only one man. The high priest. And only one day throughout the whole year on Yom Kippur. And that's equated to the manifest presence of God. No man can see God and live. I'm amazed that Moses did. But it's a very rare encounter when God appears in the flesh and recognizable to us mere flesh. Manifest presence. I'll tell you, we have something to look forward to the day we die. We'll be able to see Jesus. Wow, what a day that'll be. So each of these four areas of the temple was very unique and very exclusive to those that were allowed access into that court. Now I want us to take a closer look at this holy place within the temple or the inner court, that exclusive area that was for priests only. So I'm going to read from Ezekiel 44, verses 15 and 16. This is a powerful, powerful scripture from the prophet priest. Ezekiel was not only a prophet, he was also a priest. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary, when the children of Israel went astray from me, they should come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me, to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table, to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. Do you notice something common in there? Wow. In two verses, God expresses the possessive me, my, and mine ten times. Ten times of possessiveness of how special this is to God. They're going to offer to me. They're going to bless me. They're going to honor me. You see, it's all about God in the inner court. It's all about God. It's all about God. And in these verses, I understand God to be saying that this priestly ministry to him only is what is most meaningful to him. He is possessive. He is passionate 
about this personal relational ministry. You know, a year after I had moved to Jerusalem in 1982, in 1983, they made a huge archaeological discovery. <coughs> Excuse me. You may not have heard about that here, but it was big news in Israel because it was discovered through an archaeological find of how long the priests had a priestly assignment in the inner court. <clears throat> Their assignment throughout the entire year to be able to have access to the inner court was a mere two weeks out of the whole year. Fourteen consecutive days. Day and night. So throughout the entire year, these men looked forward to this two-week priestly ministry. Now think about it for a moment. You've been waiting all year long for two glorious weeks of intimate communion with God. And it wasn't just 24-7. It was 24-14. Their prayers, their reading and studying of the scriptures, their sacrifices, their offerings, their praise, their worship, everything was accepted and welcomed by God in the holy place. Friends, this was priestly ministry in its purest form. It's no wonder that King David had such a longing desire in his own heart for this type of priestly ministry himself. I want you to hear his heart in this scripture. How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. How blessed are those who dwell in thy house. Do you see the priesthood? How blessed are those who dwell in thy house. They are ever praising thee. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand outside. Psalm 84. Now I've kept this slide up the longest in your view so that it can penetrate the deepest in your hearts. God is possessive concerning inner court ministry. Now, there was a great difference between inner court ministry and outer court ministry. Ministry in the inner court was purely to and for God. Outer court ministry was to the people and for the people. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 44, 19. When the priests go out, implying from the inner court, when the priests go out to the outer court, to the outer court to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered and leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments. So the outer court was where the people are. But the priests were to perform both services in both courts during their priestly function in the temple because both 
were significant, both ministry to God and ministry to men. And the Lord's priests were different than all the rest of God's people. Everyone knew how special it was to be a priest of the Most High God. And what an honor it was to be his priest. God listened to his priests when they prayed. He welcomed their worship and adoration. And no one else among God's people had that blessed assurance. Not even the king. Now, let's return back to our text in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. It mentions a veil in that verse 20. And again, how many veils were there in the temple? How many veils were there in the temple? Amen. Hebrews 9, verse 3 told us that. And it's recorded in the Gospels that when Jesus died, a veil that was torn in the temple. So here's the question. So why or how did the veil get torn in two without the temple being totally destroyed? Well, to learn more about the description of Herod's temple or the second temple, I read historical accounts that really gave some amazing detail. Josephus gives a vivid description of this temple, the second temple, and especially inside the temple. He describes that there was another veil in the temple that was also called, it was called the first veil. We read Hebrews 9, 3, the second veil is in the most holy place, but there was a first veil. And the size is pretty amazing. It was 20 cubits high, 20 cubits wide, and about two cubits thick. Now, in modern measurements, that comes to around 30 feet high, 30 feet wide, and three feet thick at the bottom. Get that mental image. Now, this is pretty amazing. What was it made of? It was made of old priestly garments that were no longer of use after years and years of service. Even the clothes that the priests wore were holy. As I read in Ezekiel 44, they had to take off their holy clothes and put on different clothes when they went out to the people. The clothes were holy and they couldn't destroy them, they couldn't burn them, they couldn't bury them. So what did they do with them? They wove them into a wall of separation between God's priesthood and everyone else. Wow. It was to symbolize the priest's separation to God in the holy place. And the wall or the veil showed a distinction between the inner court ministry to God and the outer court ministry to the people. Okay, back to the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus died at Passover, which is in what time of the year? Spring. Let's all say spring. 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 Now, what time of the year is Yom Kippur? Fall. Let's all say fall. Now, if the veil that was torn in the temple 
when Jesus died was the veil in the most holy place. Hear me now. No one would have found out about it for at least six months until Yom Kippur came. And then only the high priest would have discovered it. And how would he have ever connected the tearing of the veil in the most holy place, connected it back six months earlier when that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified? Six months earlier. Historically, it is recorded that all of Jerusalem was in great chaos and confusion that crucifixion Friday and the following Sabbath. Why? Because this 30 foot high, 30 foot wide, and 3 foot wall of old priest's clothes was perfectly torn in two from the top to the bottom. And these old priest's clothes were cut in two as if a scissors from heaven snipped it in perfectly down the middle. Wow. And no other part of the temple was damaged. That freaked out the whole city. Word went around everywhere. The veil is torn. First time from the outer court they could look into the inner court where the priests were. Absolutely shocking, Josephus said. There were only a few that were there at the crucifixion of Jesus, but it was during Passover, so everyone was in the temple, most everyone. And they were shocked at what took place. Now, here's the bigger picture of what happened, so you can really see from a heavenly perspective. A new blood covenant was established for the house of Israel. When Jesus died, he fulfilled the prophecy in Jeremiah 31.1. The moment he died. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The new covenant was established the moment Jesus died. Wow. A new blood covenant with the house of Israel and an entirely new covenant priesthood emerged. Now, I know that this is new to most of you, but that's where the priesthood started. The new covenant, holy, royal priesthood. He was the high priest that said, I'm the first and the last. Wow. No longer. This is what's so amazing. No longer do you and I need to prove our bloodline heritage of a priestly inheritance because of our parental bloodline lineage. Now, as the scriptures say, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. To do what? To know him personally. To have an intimate relationship with God. To enjoy his presence. To have our prayers heard. Hello, priests. To have our prayers heard and answered. And to present acceptable sacrifices and offerings to our God. You know, the temple is quite amazing. I'm uh, 
be honest, I'm really excited for all of us men. Because we all gained access from the outer court to the inner court. Exclusive, men only. Guys, we move from the outer court to the inner court. That's a huge hallelujah. Amen. Yeah, we got someone that's getting a little. But I'll tell you, as excited as I am for us men, I'm doubly excited for you ladies. We all moved one. Listen, ladies, you were here. You went boom, boom. You moved two courts. Two courts. Can you imagine what the angels in heaven were doing? Women, priests. It had never happened before. Never. Until the day that Jesus died. One of the first times I gave this message was in Australia at the Catholic Charismatic National Conference. 400 Catholic Charismatic leaders. And I gave this message. It was in a, a bit of a different form. But when I got to that point, there were about 20 nuns that started weeping. They, ju they just lost it. They thought, this is the first time that my priesthood has been validated. This new royal priesthood was birthed with an entirely new bloodline lineage, the blood of Christ. No restrictions of age, gender, race, or ancestry. What a marvelous savior we have, amen. Now, with this in mind, let's look at what the writer to the Hebrews encourages us to do next. Hebrews 10 also says, ready? Hebrews 10, let us, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us... Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Beloved, right after it gives access to us as a priestly people because of the blood of Jesus into the holy place, he says, now here's what we do. Let us. An act of the will. All three of the verses say, let us. It's an act of the will. Let us, let us, let us, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. And I would just say, and I'd add this, let us embrace our priestly calling today. We hear very little about priestly calling and messages on the priesthood in Protestant Christianity. Because priest is reserved to the Catholics. No, it's not. We are holy, royal priests of God that are in a Baptist environment. <laughs> Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. What a glorious Redeemer. What a new and living way He made for us. Through His flesh, He purchased a whole new covenant and a new covenant priesthood. I want you to close your eyes. I want you all to close your eyes. And I want you to listen to these descriptive words of Ezekiel, the prophet priest. 
And I'm going to be reading from Ezekiel 43. Just, just let these words soak into your heart. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And I heard one speaking to me from the temple while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. As for you, Son of man, describe the temple of the house of the Lord to my people, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and then let them measure their plan. Father, I pray that we would all be found faithful priests. We're all priests. But Lord, there were those that were faithful and those that were unfaithful. Lord, I pray that we become faithful from this day onward. Lord, we're still in the, in the Passover, we're in the resurrected season. Lord, it was just last weekend where we had so much festive activities and celebration and remembrance. Lord, our calling is to both function in inner court ministry to you alone and also outer court ministry to where the people are. But Lord, in order for us to do that effectively, we're going to need to have some change. Change in attitudes. Change in priorities. Maybe change in standards. And Father, the truth is, some of us priests, we need to repent for being unfaithful. Not seeing the privilege and honor and responsibility that we have as a priest. First and foremost, to come and meet the desires of your heart by simply just being with you. Lord, this is the season, post-resurrection, where you're calling for each of us to now enter into a fresh way the new covenant priesthood that emerged that day when Jesus died. And Lord, the final statement that Ezekiel heard was let, let my people measure their plan of how they can change. Holy Father, Holy Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray you would help each one of us to order our steps and to measure our plan of how we can move into greater faithfulness as a priest in all the days that will follow. Grant this, I pray, to the glory and to the majesty and the wonder of the name of Jesus.